1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: Welcome back to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? How you doing?
3: Oh, just a fantastic party all the time.
2: Yes. And now we'll have baseball back in thirty days?
0: If they
3: oh, whatever. allegedly. I A, I am only calling this baseball in quotation marks because Fair. whatever this is, it isn't baseball. No, All, extra
2: innings with a runner on second. Come on, my softball team does that.
3: No, I I am gonna believe that any of these leagues are actually gonna play sports when it actually happens. But given that all that my television is telling me is that uh, infection numbers are rising, this suggests to me it's really not the right time to be doing any of this and that everyone eventually will come to their common sense and realize this is all a bad idea.
2: And every day another team reports players as having tested positive. I think Charlie Blackman, an all-star outfielder for the Rockies, tested positive. I mean, obviously that's not to say that, you, you know, that you can't be asymptomatic and be fine and, and come back from this, obviously. That that's happening all over the globe. But yeah, this just seems we we talked about this all last week and anyway, anyway, we really Dan. did. Let's, yeah.
3: let's not linger. I think we already but hey, tested our <laughs> Splash Mountain. Bye-bye, Splash Mountain. Did you hear about this one, Dan? I, I did. Uh the the Disney is now gonna pretend that Song of the South was not a horribly racist movie that Walt Disney desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to make. So sure, let's just Cover up and printify Walt Disney's image a little bit more. That is my feeling on this: is that it's all just willful denial.
2: (laughs) And it's of course you know the the ride at Disneyland and in Florida, Disney World is being rebranded for the Princess and the and the Frog. Well, if you're a Disneyland fan like me, that that's great news that they're finally getting with the times. But also, what the hell took so long? And this, you know, in in making their announcement, they said that this was uh, in the works for more than a year.
3: Sure. I mean, I'm sure, sure it was whatever sure. anyway, and also uh, Gone with the Wind is back on HBO Max with a four minute introduction, which is a very good introduction and which is an introduction that they should have had with it from the minute it premiered because they should have been aware this was a conversation people would have wanted and needed to have. So, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, <laughs> well, let's get it. sounds like you're kind of getting into headlines here, Dan. So let's keep it rolling. Netflix has renewed Kenya Barris comedy Black as fuck for a second season and reverse course on the fifth and final season of lucifer the former fox drama will return for what is being dubbed as its sixth and final final season at netflix additionally the streamer has also picked up the third season of karate kid sequel cobra kai from youtube which as we've mentioned before is no longer in the scripted space
3: I, I like that you wanted to uh, to explain to the kids what black AF stands for. That, it's that's very
2: just how I read it. You know, <laughs> like when someone texts you like AF, I'm like, I don't read it as AF. I, I read what it means and I'm trying not to curse again. OK, fine. Right. And
3: in and in other renewal news for a show that you didn't know existed in the first place, Fox has picked up an early second season of the forthcoming animated comedy, The Great North, which currently hasn't had a first season.
2: Right. But animated shows take longer to produce, therefore renewing them in advance keeps production on track. So what they're saying is season one is in the can, is what this announcement read. So elsewhere at Fox, the network has shelved the 17th season of So You Think You Can Dance, which cannot be completed to make its annual summer premiere date. Fox has a fall schedule filled with gently used programming and hopes to have all of its flagship originals back in January, meaning... There's just no room for this thing on the schedule anywhere.
3: And Fox knows that it cannot shoot. So you think you can dance? And yet ABC continues to think that dancing with the stars is something they're going to be able to do. So for
2: quote unquote, the fall, which could mean January, which could mean October. Who knows, Dan?
3: Anyway, Apple has picked up The After Party, a murder mystery comedy from the reliable duo of Phil Lord and Chris Miller.
2: NBC, meanwhile, has narrowed its pilot field. This one's a little tricky here, Dan. So they picked up 12 comedy and dramas uh, late last year. And of those, five of them are going to move forward and look to be filmed sometime in the fall when it's safe to do so. They are Langdon, Ordinary Joe, The Night School Reboot, Workplace comedy, American Auto, and the Dan Gore-Phil Augusta Jackson comedy about a group of black friends. Five other pilots have enrolled to next season. You can look those up on THR.com. And sci-fi dramas La Brea and Debris both are remaining in contention. So lots going on there, but it's kind of interesting the way that NBC decided what to do with all of its pilots, which, of course, none of which I think La Brea may have been the only one. La Brea got extra script orders. Debris may have been the only one that actually completed or was able to be completed before the industry wide shutdown. So look for other news, other networks to hopefully follow suit and kind of making one big decision about its current pilot slate. So it's very helpful for me if you cover Development stuff like I do, so
3: which which all of our listeners I know clearly do. I
2: clearly loved covering pilot season. It's <laughs> it's something I've done for years here at THR. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I love it and I hate it because it's so much work. But this season is obviously far from traditional because obviously pilot season didn't happen. So stay tuned or don't stay tuned. I don't care. I'm interested. You don't have to be.
3: HBO Max is turning Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers into an anthology with the first season focused on Dr. Anthony Fauci. And over at HBO proper, the Premium Cable Network has renewed Betty, a show that we both watched last weekend for a second season.
2: Yeah, dude, that was an awesome binge. I think I watched it over two nights. Really fun. It just, you know, for, you know, I'd been fighting back some feelings of feeling claustrophobic in my own home, and it really kind of delivered this great sense of freedom and a amazing focus on female friendships, plus skateboard culture in New York. It was an awesome binge.
3: I can't believe it took you two days. I watched it all on Sunday morning.
2: Yeah, I'm a late night person, so (laughs) I only watched half and then the wife wanted to watch something else and then we watched something else. So Meanwhile, Comedy Central has picked up Daria spinoff Jody, starring Tracy Ellis Ross. This has been in the works for a few years now. It's an animated offshoot, of course, from the MTV show. Um, and the first series that MTV Studios tried to package once it launched its own studio. So if that feels like Inside Baseball, you can read more about it on THR.com.
3: And continuing the, uh, the drama behind the scenes on Bold and the Beautiful which one might say as the world turns, uh, has resumed production and stopped and is changing COVID testing labs following a string of false positives. And basically it's all confusing and... So what does this mean? Does this mean that it actually is or isn't happening at this moment?
2: Well, I think it's stalled right now because they were getting, obviously, as you mentioned, some false positives. But this is basically the show is the guinea pig. The soap opera is the guinea pig to getting back to work. And I think a lot of people are looking at how they're able to or what they're able to do. So stay tuned next week for another chapter in The Bold and the Beautiful Saga. So, well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five.
3: Number one. Leading off, Hulu held its new front this week and revealed that two more high-profile FX-scripted originals would be moving to its relatively new FX on Hulu channel. Leslie, tell us what we discovered this week from Hulu.
2: Yeah, buried in a very, very long release touting what was going on at Hulu for the new fronts was the news that Why the Last Man and the the newly announced Ryan Murphy episodic anthology American Horror Stories will both make the move and likely launch on FX on Hulu sometime next year they join the previously announced limited series A Teacher starring Nick Robinson and Kate Mara and the Jeff Bridges drama The Old Man. The FX on Hulu platform launched this spring with Devs and Mrs. America. I'm told that a third of F- of Hulu's scripted programming will come from FX through 2021. Unclear if the pandemic changes that, but Expect this to continue, you know, as we mentioned when we covered the, the creation of this uh, dedicated channel of sorts, this is Disney continuing to prioritize streaming over linear networks. You know, it, you have to kind of have your head in the sand if you're not seeing what's happening with some of these basic cable and even premium cable networks where you're seeing shows like Search Party, for example, which we'll talk about more on the show, move from a network like TBS to a streaming platform. This is exactly what Disney is doing. They're beefing up Hulu, they're beefing up Disney Plus, and they're using FX to do so in this case. So, yeah.
3: Well, with the primary difference being that TBS had already begun a transition away from the thing that Search Party is, and it's unclear what TBS actually is going to be going forward. But... I don't know that we ever knew what TBS was because it kept changing identities. Whereas, what changed from one identity
2: to the next? Right, multicam to single cam niche. Right,
3: but even but it was still something else before it was multicam. So basically, TBS never has settled into anything for long enough for me to be able to say, okay, that's what TBS is, and it's successful successfully that. I'm not sure if I want to give it a brand identity credit for being a network that had repeats of, uh, of Big Bang Theory. I mean, that's, and France, you know, yeah. and Friends. but still. So whereas FX had a very established, very successful brand. And this is strange to me, even if you accept that streaming is the future, which, of course, it absolutely is. And we all know that and just, you know, hop on, go for the ride. But to be basically gutting FX as a network at every turn, It feels perplexing to me. I I don't know. But it's basically
2: what they're saying is FX has hit a ceiling. It's kind of like what Bob Greenblatt said about HBO last year in an interview with with our colleague Lacey Rose. And basically that these networks only have so much space. Right. In terms of of programming slots. Right. And. When you think about it that way and that, and then the number of viewers that some of that that are coming in or the number of subscribers like they may have plateaued. This is what Disney and Warner Media are effectively saying by by moving some of these shows to their streaming platforms because the investment should be in streaming. That's where everyone is doing what everyone is doing right now. Netflix is spending billions and billions of dollars. Amazon, who they're all the same. And meanwhile, the number of people who are cutting the cord is soaring. So the opportunity for you to grow viewership at FX versus the opportunity for you to grow subscribers at Hulu. It's not a hard equation.
3: This is unquestionably true. And again, it is where the industry is going. I just still find it somewhat sad to be watching FX become a tab on Hulu. And, you know, if the program continues to be good, that's good. And if you know, mayor of TV, John Landgraf continues to be happy with where FX is within the Disney infrastructure landscape, what have you. That's good. It just it you know, this this is just me being old fashioned and 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 analog and being a little bit sad about. Yeah,
2: you can you can be cable and I can be streaming here, but the thing that that's important to note here is that John Langreff is not losing oversight of these shows because they're moving to FX on Hulu. His team, marketing, PR, development, etc., they continue to oversee these shows on FX once they make it to FX on Hulu. So, it's just a different platform and, you know, Hulu said in its new front that 50% of its subscribers have engaged with the FX on Hulu programming hub since it launched. And the streamer noted that the digital offering has expanded FX's reach by 130%. That's a big number, even if I don't know fully what that means, because streamers don't release viewership ratings and data and all that other stuff. It's just made up percentages. But basically, this is an extension of the FX brand at a time when people are cutting the cord. It's 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 super interesting. And, and for me... I, it's just wow man what another chapter in this in the big saga of why the last man
1: (laughs) two different platforms
2: two different showrunners two what two attempts at a movie it's been in the works since at least 2007 um efforts to bring it to the screen whether it be a film or a tv series man two leading men yeah It's a lot.
3: And anything else announced by Hulu that you want to touch on before we move on to our second topic?
2: Yes, this just in. The streamer has handed out a straight to series order for Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends, the normal people author's debut novel. Excellent. There you go. Well, Dan, that takes us to our second topic this week. Up second, television is beginning to right some of its recent wrongs. Number two. This week, Netflix's Big Mouth and Apple's Central Park each announced that they would replace actresses Jenny Slate and Kristen Bell, who voiced mixed-raced animated characters on each show, with black actresses. Meanwhile, Tina Fey and Bill Lawrence asked for episodes of their shows 30 Rock and Scrubs that featured characters in blackface to be pulled from streaming and syndication. Jimmy Kimmel also issued a lengthy statement apologizing for doing a blackface impression of former NBA star Karl Malone, among other celebrities. You mentioned at the top of the show that Gone with the Wind is back with a contextual warning. It's been a busy week.
3: It has. And a lot of these things obviously are things that were long in coming. And in some cases, things that have been brought up before and then forgot and are now only beginning to stick. For example, the Jimmy Kimmel, Carl Malone impression, it comes around every couple months, honestly, as some conservative pundit or other discovers that the man show, for example, was a really gross thing that Jimmy Kimmel did for a bunch of years. So it's sort of funny and yet not funny at all, much like the impression of Carl Malone, that it keeps circulating. I think probably this is a time where it's actually sticking, which is probably good, In the same sense that the blackface in the live episode of 30 Rock was something that people did discuss when it happened. People just didn't apparently discuss it with enough intensity. So now we're at a moment where we're actually prepared to have these conversations. And Tina Fey has been unprepared to have a lot of these conversations in the past. And I, I think it's very notable, the idea that maybe she's changing. For example, she she really did not want to entertain conversations about the fact that Jane Krakowski's character on Kimmy Schmidt was Native American. And there was an entire episode that was mocking online outrage about racial appropriation, because at that moment, Tina Fey did not want to discuss these things. If she does now, that's great. But this is not something that anyone should be pretending has been buried and under discussed. Tina Fey has had some, I don't know, some blank spots in her representational depictions in the past, and now she wants to talk about them. So good. And that's good. I don't know that necessarily any of these things should be pulled. I I think that, once again, as with Gone with the Wind, some sort of contextual warning is a good idea, especially since in the case of the, the blackface depictions on 30 Rock... They were directly commenting on blackface as a racial depiction. And so it becomes a question of, is there a conversation they were trying to have that is still worth having, or is the mere presence of blackface? a way of killing that conversation straight out and saying, OK, we're getting stuck on that. We can't go any further in in talking about this. And I think pulling it kind of says, OK, we're not having this conversation anymore. We made a mistake as opposed to here's what we were trying to do. Here's what we thought we were saying. Here's what we thought we were commenting on. If we failed, let's talk about why we failed. That, that's always my own preference. You know, just I, I like to have conversations about things. Uh, Whereas the animated stuff, I think, is is really interesting because, again, this is not something that's new at press tour back in January, 8000 years ago. Lauren Bouchard was asked directly about having Kristen Bell playing a biracial character. And his answer was entirely to paraphrase here. um, We cast the best voice. We wanted to have her on the show. We understood it was not perfect casting, but we wanted to have Kristen Bell in this role. And at the time, he felt that was an end of the conversation and it has ceased to be an end of the conversation. And I think probably the decision they made now to have Kristen Bell do some other voice because she's awesome. But to have a biracial actress voicing the character of Molly on this show, it's the right thing to do. So, yeah, a lot of this is very, very, very overdue. And You know, it's one thing to say we should have been having these conversations years ago. And in some cases, we were. They just weren't being amplified and listened to. So if this is the moment where we're prepared to have actual meaningful conversations about these things, then it's only only good. There's there's no there's no bad to wanting to have conversations about difficult subjects. Yeah. So
2: we should also note, too, that there was a, a great Twitter thread from a uh, friend of the five, Raphael Bob Waxberg, on uh, on social this week, kind of talking about about this a little bit, Dan, too.
3: There is uh, because he's been having this conversation and you can kind of watch his own handling of having Alison Brie voice the character of Diane went on the show, a Vietnamese character. And it's been a thing where initially it was an OK. Some people were uncomfortable with it. And and that's the thing. A lot of people like when these stories come up to be like, God, well, why did no one complain at the time? They They did. You just didn't listen or you weren't paying attention or you didn't think it was important enough to actually invest in. But the conversations were being had at the time. There were people who were concerned that... This was not a role that should be voiced by a white actress. And Raphael Bob Bob Waksberg, his I don't want to say his opinion has changed on it, but how he's wanted to confront it and his degree of regret about it has changed and shifted over the years. And he's become increasingly candid. And I think he's probably a great example of of somebody who wants to have these conversations and who knows a mistake was made and isn't trying to in any way, downplay the mistake and also isn't trying to downplay the way that they've attempted to correct the mistake hasn't always been correct. And so I I think I think his Twitter thread and a lot of interviews he's done on the subject have been very effectively introspective. And uh, yeah, I that's what we're trying to do is what everyone's trying to do is have a conversation. I, I think that that is what everyone is trying to do here. And These conversations need to be had. And these conversations weren't just invented yesterday.
2: And honestly, they need to be had at the executive level because when these shows are being put together and cast, because there needs to be more people of color in these rooms that can sit there and say, hey, maybe not a good idea to have a white actress voice a biracial character.
3: Yeah, I mean, that ultimately is going to be more important than literally anything else is that if the decision makers continue to be generally all white, and the people in the room who are letting these things go by, for the most part, tend to be all white, it becomes easier for those people to simply go, OK, this doesn't bother me, and therefore it's not a problem, as opposed to understanding that there are plenty of voices that they simply aren't hearing. And it is it's bizarre. And the case with Big Mouth, I have to admit this, I love Big Mouth, and i I hadn't given any thought at all to who was voicing that character. And so that clearly is on me. I simply hadn't processed in my mind, oh, okay, that's right. That's who Jenny Slate is voicing on this show. That's weird. And so we can all do better. Uh, And I I don't know why I hadn't processed that. I I guess it's because it wasn't an instantly identifiable, oh, that voice is clearly Jenny Slate voice. But yeah, none none of this is new. No one should think that people weren't concerned about these things before. People were, again, you just weren't listening. So that's what all that anyone is trying to do on a lot of these things is is just to to get people to listen and to get people with actual power to listen, because for too long they haven't been.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Dan. Well, that takes us to our third topic this week.
1: Number three.
2: Up third. Up third. Showtime this week announced that it has reversed course and will indeed air its James Comey miniseries, The Comey Rule, ahead of the November presidential election. The cable network had previously announced that the series starring Jeff Daniels as the former FBI director and Brennan Gleeson as Donald Trump would air in late November after the November 3rd presidential election. The series, which is based on Comey's memoir, A Higher Loyalty, and interviews from writer-director Billy Ray with the real-life figures in the story, will now air September 27th and 28th. The decision, of course, came a day after Ray sent a memo to cast and crew expressing his disappointment that the Viacom CBS backed Cabler would air it after the election. And that was, of course, after everyone involved with the production was pressured to deliver the episodes by May 15th. Kind of a disappointing move here, Dan.
3: Well, it just the, the disappointing part is how, for whatever reason, Showtime blundered the entire announcement situation because the reversing course came like two days after they announced when it was going to premiere. So there was no way for Showtime not to look bad. There was no way for Showtime not to be like, here's our premiere date. And then Billy Ray's like, yeah, this wasn't what we wanted at all. Showtime's like, oops, now here's our new premiere date. So there was no introspection. It was we got shamed into putting this on an earlier date. Okay
2: or yeah yeah exactly we got we got pressured into putting this on after the election or we bowed to pressure i mean who knows what what happened behind the scenes here but it's just either way it's not a good look
3: Yeah, it's it's we got we maybe bowed to because it's totally a maybe on we maybe bowed to pressure to put it on after the election. And then we definitely bowed to pressure to put it on before the election. But why was the pressure that we bowed to to put it on before the election more powerful than the pressure we bowed to put it on after the election? It's a it's a whole strange conversation that makes no sense and makes no sense, particularly if you follow the news stories that basically Billy Ray and the producers had been working overtime to make sure that they had the thing ready to go before the election. So if that was the thing that they were doing everything predicated upon it's kind of it's it's all just vaguely embarrassing and now we'll see cuz it's let's let's be real this is this is something that John Landgraf talked about when people got worked up about the possibility of an American crime story Monica Lewinsky's series, impeachment series yeah yeah coming before The election. And that was even more remote because obviously it had literally nothing to do with the Donald Trump versus Joe Biden election, though at the time we didn't know who Donald Trump was going to be against. But it became a question of is that going to become a talking point for the president? But it was still kind of oblique and roundabout. And basically what John Landgraff said at the time at press tour was I don't think it's going to have any impact. Well, this is a direct acknowledgement of the current things happening in the web in the White House. There's nothing oblique about it. But I am still inclined to go with the John Landgraf perspective that this isn't going to have anything, any impact at all on the election. Like how many people are a watch a Showtime miniseries about James Comey and Donald Trump. And then at that point, how many people are going to be like, oh, my God, seeing Brendan Gleeson embody Donald Trump caused me to realize he was not a good president. I I don't think it's going to have any impact whatsoever. But on the other hand, if you are Billy Ray and you're the people involved with this, you want people to be discussing your miniseries that that much more than I want to impact the election. I don't think Billy Ray honestly thinks this is going to be an impact on the election. But he does know that the conversation about this will be greater if it comes out before the election. And he's right about that. Of course, he's right about that. And so since he is, of course, right about that, that means that Showtime was going to schedule this for a time when they knew the conversation was going to be less. And at that point, you're like, okay. What? What did they think they were doing? So I don't know is the answer.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that was, of course, one of a few scheduling changes at Showtime. They also pushed back the Good Lord Bird for a third time this time to October.
3: It was originally announced tentatively as a spring premiere, uh, though I believe everyone at Showtime told me that was entirely tentative at the time. Then it was much less tentatively announced as a summer premiere. And now it's going to be a fall premiere. So, yay.
2: (laughs) Elsewhere, Hulu noted that The Handmaid's Tale and Kate McKinnon vehicle The Dropout, plus Amy Schumer comedy Love, Beth, all moving to 2021, Dan. Not surprising, though.
3: No, not the least bit surprising, particularly in the case of Handmaid's Tale, where they'd shot for basically a week. Yeah. Before the shutdown began. So guess what? That was never coming out in 2020 regardless. But what this all does is it opens up a bigger conversation about what the second half of 2020 is going to look like in terms of television. When Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted the trailer for Disney Plus's airing of Hamilton, I retweeted it. And one of the things I noted was this could be the last thing that I know that I'm looking forward to in 2020. And a couple people responded with alternative things. But man, the second half of 2020 is going to be a strange, strange landscape. And as I approach it, looking at the second half of the year, I'm I'm approaching it pretending that none of the broadcast scripted shows are going to be back in 2020. I understand they're all pretending that some of them might and well, maybe a handful will.
2: That's where I keep saying, quote unquote, fall, because no one knows. I mean, especially, you know, as you said at the top of the show, the the numbers, the coronavirus numbers are not conducive to resuming production right now or or baseball for that matter i mean you know look this week you guys uh you and you and ingu posted your best tv series of 2020 so far as you kind of scroll down the calendar and of course there's you know likely to be other netflix stuff that that gets announced because we they have said that they that their 2020 is on track but when you kind of scroll down and look at what's coming is there anything besides like what else besides hamilton could maybe even crack your best of 2020 list
3: yeah it's it's going to be peculiar because everyone always does a best whatever's in the first half of the year, and you do that with the assumption that there are going to be things in the second half that are going to make the list change. Whereas what Ingo and I did this week, we we just picked our five favorites for the first half of the year. It's I would be astonished if my top five at the end of the year didn't include Three, four, all five of the shows on the list that we did, it's because there's just not going to be that much. So, so what's coming in the next few months that we know about? Um, I'm intrigued by Lovecraft Country on on HBO. I, I read the book; it's an interesting book. If it's done right, it should be entertaining. Uh, will it be best of the year worthy? I I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen a second of it, so who knows? Uh, I will probably watch the new season of The Alienist, which has become one of these strange things where when the first season premiered, everyone had basically forgotten about Caleb Carr's book. When the second season premieres, everyone's basically going to have forgotten about the first season of the series. So you're just constantly being reminded that this franchise exists. But again, I I can't imagine that's going to be a top 10 worthy thing, uh, Let's see. End of next month, the Muppets are coming back on on Disney Plus. That's probably not going to be top 10, but I can I can watch that. We mentioned the Comey rule. We mentioned Good Lord Bird. I can look forward to those. Are we still pretending that the Falcon and Winter Soldier is coming out in in later this year? I don't even know anymore. I'd be shocked. I I, I would also be shocked. And at a certain point, if they thought it was coming out in August, which was the last time anyone said it was coming out. Maybe it'd be good to start promoting it, but whatever. So I think they're going to have to be some real surprises. Uh, Is the is the fourth season of The Crown going to be able to make it by the end of the year? Because I believe they had finished production. I think that's a distinct possibility. And maybe that will be good because there's a lot of there's a lot of great material in in the story that they're moving up to. So that could be there. Uh, I I would be shocked if more than one or two things in the second half of the year were top five or top ten worthy. And that's a a strange feeling as as I look forward to the end of the year is is there's just there's going to be a lot of stuff that's still premiering. But
2: you might actually have time to watch baseball with me if there's baseball, of course. I was going to we've already said
3: we've already said several times it's probably not happening. So so who knows it? But yes, so. The second half of the year is going to be an interesting
2: time. Well, Dan, really quick run through what are your top five of 2020 so far?
3: Let's see. I've I put a lot of things with B in my list. So when we made the list, my list included better things, which I think is a safe guarantee to be in my top ten at the end of the year. Uh, better Call Saul, basically guaranteed to be in my top ten at the end of the year. Brockmire, basically guaranteed. Uh, what else did I even put in my top five? Uh, I Will Destroy You, which I think is one of those shows which has a strong chance of lingering well in my mind as we go forward. And then probably the most flexible of the shows that were in my top five in that gallery we did, that list we did, was Ugly Delicious on Netflix. And that's because I've been doing a lot of watching of Netflix food programming lately. And it's, it's like the only thing that's making me happy. And the second season of Ugly Delicious was fantastic. But this uh, most recent season of Somebody Feed Phil was fantastic. Speaking of food programming, Padmalachmi's uh Hulu show, which I mentioned last week, it's really good. So I think that's the position that probably is, is most flexible for something new to pop up in the second half of the year. <sighs> Who knows? I, I look forward to And Let's say this way. I look forward to being surprised. I can't wait to be surprised by what great TV is coming up in the second half of the year.
2: That is a fair assessment. Well, with that, up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment.
3: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
3: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
3: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> Our guests this week are showrunners, writers, and frequent directors on HBO Max's Search Party, a series they co-created with Michael Showalter. Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers previously wrote and directed the feature Fort Tilden. And the third season of Search Party is now out on HBO Max. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So... The last new episode of Search Party, and I had to look this up, aired on TBS back in December of 2017, which feels like about a million years ago. And you guys were subsequently renewed at TBS, moved to HBO Max, renewed again there. How roller coastery have the past two and a half, three years felt in terms of this show?
0: Yeah, well, it wasn't in terms of like going from a network to a new network. That wasn't that crazy because that was more just like we rolled in with the same people. Like it, it was kind of kept in like the dark, what exactly was happening. Um, There was like a big merger that they were like, look, we're going to renew your show, but we're not going to release your show for a while. (laughs) Um, But you're still working with the same people. There was no like, drama in terms of your like you were on TBS but now you're going to be on the new streamer quote unquote we didn't know what the streamer was <laughs> that it didn't have a name for a really long time there was a big like question mark about what the na- the name of the streamer was going to be and then the you know a lot of we're gonna reveal what the name of the streamer is going to be called in a week or so. And it was like, what is the name of the streamer going to be? And then, um, that was exciting when we found out that, and then, um, it wasn't, it wasn't like there was any, like we left TBS and now we're with HBO max. It was, it was part of like, a long-term plan that we weren't really,
2: you know, like... It's still in the family, but it's like, yes, the, instead exactly. of going, for, you know, to the to the annoying cousin's house back, you know, for another holiday, you're like, oh, let's go, let's go to the, the rich, the rich uncles, exactly. right?
0: That <laughs> we didn't really, we never really knew, we knew, vaguely knew we had a rich, rich uncle, but, <laughs> but we weren't ever invited before. And now we got, now we got to have like, oh... The taste of this, this turkey has this ingredient that, that we never had access to, but. It's um, just
3: salt. It's always just salt.
2: Yeah. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry. This is perhaps the worst analogy. I I think
1: the, I think the fam, the more like apt family analogy is that like a very rich man married into our family and then we all just moved in with him.
2: See, that's why you're the writer. Exactly. That, <laughs> yeah. that was a very good, yeah. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, you know, and we we talk a lot on, on this show, or we have talked a lot about it on the show, about what was going on with TBS. I mean, was there ever a point in the process where you're like, all the, like, Snowpiercer's a, a TBS show, but now it's not again? Like, were you questioned what the hell was going on over there? I mean, did you ever talk to any execs? And if so, who and what did they say? I mean... We still don't know what's going on with that network.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what's happening with it right now, to be honest, Um, because we haven't talked with them about it in quite a while. Because as the as HBO Max started emerging, that's kind of been all we care about. (laughs) So um, but like in the early days, I think. I would maybe loop Search Party into a part of that question of, of what was TBS or what has TBS been up to? Cause it's, it's such a strange situation where like we're so grateful that TBS took the risk that it did on the show and continued to renew it and that it's continued to sort of like slip through the system, so to speak, and now has like wound up on a bigger platform. Um, but at the same time, i but i I think it's that's an interesting point about the brand, and we were a part of a transitional rebranding for t b s and I think that we were an experiment about what it would mean to push the boundaries of that brand so it's it's nothing I'm any more privy to. Than anyone else. But I, I would consider our show to be a part of that experimentation, really. It's not like our show was necessarily the standard of the brand for TBS.
2: Right. You're talking about when TBS switched from a lot of like multi-cam, broad skewing comedies to more single cam, almost more niche in their, in their target demos, et cetera. I and mean, your show, we know from multiple TBS press releases has always been really, really strong on digital. So just kind of as a follow up, like, did you, was that the the early indicator? You're like, wow, no one's watching on linear, but here we are. We're like doubling and tripling our viewership on, on streaming. Like what was your response and how did you kind of feel about how the audience was finding your show?
1: Well, I mean, to us, like, or at least insofar as I think about it, like this was our first thing, like this was our first real thing. And, you know, we had made our feature film before that Fort Tilden. And that was, you know, such an indie that it's not like everybody saw it or anything, but (laughs) it got like a really, polarizing response in some people. It was this movie that it was like, you either love it or hate it. And it was like, whoa, I don't know. I didn't know that that's how this would go. <laughs> like, we just made it out of film school. And so, like, in a similar spirit, I feel like the way Search Party happened was, like, there were people that saw it. There were people that didn't. And the what kind of took the forefront for us in terms of understanding its place in the world was the uh, reviews and like it it just got these great reviews and it was amazing like it was it was really amazing like to to make something and for people to get it but it didn't like hit out of the gate it was a it's a cult it's a cult hit so I don't know that I have like a very clear understanding of what to compare it to. You know, it's like everything we've made so far has had this kind of weird piecemeal response where I'm still trying to feel out what the big picture of the response even means to me.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, the first season was released in that kind of unusual two a day over one week form of airing. And then the second season was released, I believe two episodes per week, but kind of weekly. This is a three episodes at first and then weekly one episode. What sense do you guys actually have of how people consume this show? Do you guys have a preference of of what the best way to watch Search Party even is? I
0: think they actually are changing it now. So it's all released at once. Um, So I and I think that that is the best way. I think that they've decided that that's the best way. But I actually don't. I I don't know that I'm not good at that kind of thing. So like, I'm just like, anytime that they have a new idea, I'm like, sure. You know, (laughs) I've, I've, I think that that feels right to me, but I have no concept of how other people view content and what they think is going to work with the way the world changes and how people are consuming things so you know I leave it up to people who track that kind of who are into tracking metrics or whatever
2: um has there been you know now that you know where you're where you're on I mean I guess this season that that's premiering today is now you may this is the season that you made thinking that you were going to air on TBS is that correct yes were you able to kind of, now that you know that you're on Max, were you able to kind of go back and add anything to it in the, you know, in the well year, literal years since you guys finished, finished filming this? And if you haven't, or now that you're renewed for what, one more, two more seasons after this? Mm-hmm. How is being on this platform going to change what you're doing? I mean, is are you able to kind of, you know, make it a little bit more edgy? And it's an already a very edgy show.
0: Yeah, we were able to just add, we were how able to have a little bit more time and we are able to make it more like we're able to do anything that HBO is able to do, but our show's tone is already kind of set. And we found that when filming season four, knowing that we could be on HBO max, we still kind of wanted to keep it in the same content that we had already established. Um, But we have also, As we've been editing it, we still want to keep it relatively in the same length, but there have been things that we've been like, oh, well, now we can keep in a couple extra minutes that we maybe would have had to cut from like previous seasons. But um, and then in this season, we were able to squeeze back in a couple of scenes that broke our hearts to have to take out <laughs> um, so we, because we had extra time. We were like, oh, good, we could we can put that one scene that we had to cut when we thought we were airing on TBS. We can put that back in.
3: Well, were there things that you were discovering you had to prioritize when you were doing the slightly tighter running time on on cable that you now suddenly get to let the world breathe a
1: little bit with? Yeah, it's mostly like comedy, but comedy tends to be the first thing that has to go, which sucks. And like we, you know, like there's always like jokes that each one of us like relates to more, or loves more, and in the edit, it's like ah, I want that joke, you know, but yeah. it's just gotta go. Um, but it's funny, like we we shot the fourth season before the safer at home measures hit and when covid was just like uh in the background of the news and so like we've stopped editing season four for a few months. We took a hiatus and now we're back at it. And it's only been like two or three days, but I feel like Sarah Violet and I are like so much less precious having like three months away from, (laughs) from editing. It's just like, yeah, cut that, cut that. Just cut that. (laughs) It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Who are we kidding? Just cut that.
3: (laughs) Okay. See, I find, I find that such a funny way to put it because search party, is a comedy, obviously, but it's funny that when you're cutting things, the first thing you would have to cut in a comedy would be the comedy. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so how hard is it to find the specific rhythms of this show and including the beats that you need so that you can be whatever the genre of the season happens to be while also being
1: a funny show? Yeah, that's a good way of asking it. I mean, it's it's so dependent on what's happening in the story cuz whenever we break the episodes and break the season we start off really trying to figure out the plot and the sort of genre elements that are going to like hook the episode And so that really takes the forefront for a while. And then we go back and we try and figure out, like, how do we make this funny? And then the the way in which people react to the situations is usually where the comedy is coming from. So it ends up being a little bit more behavioral, more than like uh, situational. But then again, like there's there's things in the third season that are like like kind of like high satire courtroom situational satire. So, like, it just really depends on what the story's deal is. But then there's always kind of this more, like, network note um... Overarching thing which is important that we try to keep in mind of like balancing the comedy with the drama and sort of like the ways that you look at the show from the outside in that we kind of forget to do sometimes about making sure like okay is this episode like how's the ratio of like funny to serious or funny to thrilling or whatever but it kind of just keeps emerging and it just keeps like organically happening so there's no it's not that that isn't necessarily a struggle. I think it just stinks to have to cut jokes.
3: <laughs> now, when the first season came out, were you guys surprised by how many? critics and audience members decided to sort of look at the main characters as being generationally representative. And does it feel to you as if this season is perhaps more of a commentary on on millennials and what millennials do and how people look at what millennials
1: do? Yeah, well, when we made when we made our feature Fort Tilden, it was at a time when the millennial conversation was like ripening (laughs) and. And so I, I feel like we were kind of like coming off of that moment. And it was around that time in like 2014 that people were really discovering that word. And like that conversation was such a, you know, like girls was out and it was just uh, it was on people's minds. And I think the the third season, I by that time, I personally have been feeling self-conscious about riding that wave out past its expiration date just because like there's a whole younger generation out there and we're all in our 30s now and it's just kind of like we're adults (laughs) like like at this point it's just like millennials just means adults so the satire in particular I think with the third season I think we wanted to go a little we wanted to step outside of the character-based satire to do some more, like, society satire. And there's some, like, references and, and things in this season that are um, more, like, cultural commentary. And we kind of wanted to for the show to expand out in that way. And it's very much about, like, lies and a corrupt justice system and unreliable authority figures and just kind of really taking the storm of the country right now and trying to make a, a, a funny courtroom version of, of the climate. Um, and I think it's just that the world and millennial traits have kind of caught up with each other and narcissism and entitlement and delusion are just the standard now. Um, so <laughs> it's like, it's, it's strange. I, I don't think we ever thought to overtly about the millennial conversation, but we were always borrowing from people that we knew. And by proxy of being millennials, I think we made we made it fit that.
2: You know, this season has been in the can for a while. And when you look at these episodes, I mean... I, I struggle, and I think like a lot of people I've heard feel the same way when you when you turn on TV now and you see characters hugging or shaking hands, and it feels so immediately dated. So when, when you look at these episodes that you have coming out now, does it suddenly feel like, does your show feel like an escapist show for a second? Does it feel like a time capsule, like you're watching a time capsule?
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, it's funny. I just watched the first episode this morning on HBO Max, and there is a scene where Dory fakes that she's diseased. And she's like, I, she's like, everyone in this, this room is going to get it if you don't, you know, (laughs) like give me my pills right now and you don't want to be responsible for this. And they're all like, oh, don't touch her. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. There's always something strangely weird about Search Party that like somehow, Touches on what is happening unintentionally, um, but also intentionally as well about what we're talking about, about the justice system and all that stuff. But it like, so in that way, I was like, yikes. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope it also just is like generally something people can watch and escape <laughs> and in a way. I
1: mean, you should never. I don't know. You should never pay attention to the timeline in Search Party. Like, it does, it's, <laughs> it will, it will make you go crazy if you try to rationalize what year it is, how much time it's been in these characters' lives. Like, <laughs> we always joke because, like, our Kristen Buckles, our, our producer, will like come up and be like, So, what year should it say on the stickers on these cars? And we're like, Shut up, shut up. <laughs> like, she's like, Because I think it's technically still 2016. And we're like, No, like, <laughs> it would be insane insane for it's like imagine that everything that these characters has gone through has been like possibly in a year and a half it's like the most traumatizing year and a half of your life
2: <laughs> you know knowing that a timeline is not something that you focus on but you know have you thought going forward you've got some other seasons now to play with will you write covid in and what these characters are like in quarantine or will any of them be have had it or have dealt with it, or even, you know, writing in, in the the Black Lives Matter protests? I mean, is that stuff that you're thinking about addressing now?
0: That's so, that's interesting. I mean, we had, we've already shot season four, so it's like, we didn't do that obviously for season four. Um, However, I don't want to say anything about season four, four that happens, but like, there's something about Dory's I won't say anything, but um, (laughs) (laughs) that is, I think, interesting in what she's going through in season four that people might relate to. (laughs) Um, But yeah.
1: It's interesting, though, because if we continue to make the series, it's a great question about. COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement um, I think like we the nice like thing about the show that we didn't intend to do but it did to itself is that it keeps like evolving and like we always kind of keep like a loose grip on it and and, like let it change Um, so I think in moving forward it's like we don't want to We don't want to feel like we set a course for ourselves that we can't um, get out of, you know, so like I, I think I think we will take those things in mind and like we will want to we will want to figure out what we want to say with it. That is the thing the show could say that would be interesting, but it's like so I mean, we're still so in it. It's so hard to know what what's going to happen in like four months. Well, in this
3: respect, the, the characters and their world is a very insular world. And so I'm kind of wondering if that almost becomes a a feature rather than a bug in, in certain instances where it's like, OK, sure, we could look at the world outside of us, but these characters probably don't look at the world outside of themselves all that much.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a good way of saying it. I think that like a big part of the show has always been like skewering white privilege and I think that in in moving forward like I think we just want to be even more mindful about what we're saying with those themes and how we're saying it and as the world refines the way we all talk about these things I want to make sure that the show is being like so smart and deep about it at the same time and i think it might take a second to recalibrate and figure out well what does that look like and what should that be but yeah ultimately i think it's safe to say that these characters are always gonna not have both feet on the ground But
3: another thing that the season does, in addition to kind of the generational awareness, is the awareness of how these characters maybe look from the outside. And that's kind of the thing that all of the media opportunities within this season present is is for people to basically declare, oh, these are not a very likable group of people if you don't necessarily know them. How have you guys approached the quote unquote likability situation with these characters? And is that something you can even consider at all?
1: Um, I I think I don't think we ever really think about likability, to be honest, like it's always something that I keep in mind or we keep in mind because people bring it up. And I think the kind of the overlap that Sarah Violet and I have with characters is like lambasting a type of person, (laughs) but at the same time, really honing in on where that person's pain is and why they're the way that they are. And I think that that's kind of your like key into understanding it's, it's your way in on, on how to relate to everyone. And I think that that like relatability in the purest sense of that word is actually more important than likability because likability is really arbitrary and subjective and everyone has a different relationship to it. And also like everyone is, everyone is crazy. Like every, every viewer have, is going to come to the show with their own blocks about themselves and whether or not they're willing to go there. And also, like, who, who are we to tell people to go places, uh, you know? So, like, it's just like you'll never get everyone to see anything the same way. Um, so, like, relatability gives you emotional access into people that would be um, you'd be less inclined to try to, Uh, assume the point of view of. So that's kind of like what we try to do is make really funny characters that people are like, oh, I get where they're coming from and why they're acting so extreme. And then that kind of like hooks you into their brains and feelings.
0: I think that we are attracted to flawed characters and that they have, you know, it's people's shadow sides that are interesting to us and delving into that and You know, having love for them, even though they are not necessarily heroic, but also sort of challenging the audience to be like, but also there's something in here that you maybe need to look at in yourself. (laughs) Like, and I think that can be a turnoff potentially for like an audience member and they'd be like, oh, but they're so awful. Which like, well, that might be something you need to work out in yourself. I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And I think we put a magnifying glass on privilege and that is not always like easy for people to take in. And that can be maybe what people have a problem with. But that is kind of what we're interested in showing.
3: Do you guys ever I don't know where you would be lurking to get these different reactions, but to get a sense of how the show might be being received differently by the people who might be in the demographic that's being depicted in the show versus everyone looking at it from the outside. Like, are there some people who who don't view this as being harshly critical of these characters because they're too close to them? And are there other people who are like, yeah, these are the worst people on Earth because they're at a greater distance?
1: Yes. And, you know, everyone we know on a personal basis is like down with the show, (laughs) 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 or at least tells us they are. Um, And I think there is a line in the sand with people, I think it's openness. I think it's self-awareness. I think not to be, I don't mean to be like, like to up myself and being like only the most chosen people get it. But like, I feel right. like, <laughs> but I mean, like I, I do, I think with satire... I think with sensibility in general, there is just there is a little bit of a binary out there and you see it in shows and in movies and with things that simplify story and simplify emotions and things that can allow two things to happen at once. And and also I think that the reason why a big part of the reason why the country is so hateful and insane is that people can't hold two ideas in their head at once. And it's just, I think there's a type of person that can, I think everyone probably can. I mean, some people are genuinely like higher and lower IQ, but, but I think that there are like, I think that, I think that everyone has the propensity for it, but I think that it, it requires some amount of self-acceptance to be open to the gray areas in life, or at least like willing to self-examine. And it's, and, and I, I find that the, the people like online that I'm like, oh, they clearly get it. Like most often are women and queer people. Like they're they're just the ones that like, like immediately hop on board and are like, I get all of these. And maybe it's because like those are, there's a lot of female and queer representation in the show and the vibe and Sarah Violet and I are are those things. And so like, I see that being the people that get it the most. But then also I, I think that, I don't know. You just can't change people. I want. I want people to. I just want everyone to be a little bit more open in the world than they are.
2: Yeah. Well, season three is out now. Season four, you mentioned, is already shot and in the can. How many more seasons do you see this going? Is four going to be the end of the end of the road for the show, or do you have a longer term plan beyond that?
1: Twenty. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, could, it
0: goes on and on and on. And <laughs> we and don't on. know.
1: I mean, we're we're gonna. I think the, the safe thing to say is that the, I don't. Neither of us want the show to ever outstay its welcome, and that ultimately, like the thing we figured out as this show's gone on, is that it's a story about Dory's psychology, and you know, we've. It's not that that it necessarily was that at the beginning. We've just figured out what we want to say with that and what the shape of that looks like. And so once we've said all of that, we're not going to keep going past what we wanted to say.
0: (laughs) I don't know if if the world's making it past 2020.
2: (laughs) Anyway, fair response. Yeah. Well, we always like to wrap our interviews with the same question. What are you guys watching and enjoying right now?
0: I watched Dave and really enjoyed Dave. Is there anything new, new since then? (laughs) (laughs)
3: did the world just stop after dave was there nowhere to go from there
0: did i not watch any i mean i've I've watched a lot of like movies old movies not old but like 90s movies i watched heat and loved heat
1: yeah we're writing a monster movie um that we're gonna (laughs) direct so i just watched species (laughs) it's really crazy um Tonight I'm going to watch Disclosure. I've heard so many good things about it, and I keep meaning to watch it on Netflix. <laughs> so that's what I'm watching okay. tonight. <laughs> and um, and I just started this book about the Koch brothers. That is, oh yeah, oy. oy, oy.
3: <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate thank you, you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Search
2: Party is now streaming on HBO Max.
1: Number five.
2: That takes us to our fifth and final topic. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's new major launches are Search Party on HBO Max, I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO proper, Black Monday on Showtime, and She Might Be Next on PBS. Dan, what you got?
3: There's some good stuff this week. I I think that a lot of people are going to be talking about I'll Be Gone in the Dark which is based on the true crime book by the late Michelle McNamara, who lots of people probably know as, uh, as Patton Oswalt's late wife. Uh, but she was also a, a crime blogger and writer. And Liz Garbus's six-part HBO documentary series tries to do a lot of things. It's somewhat a mystery about the search for the Golden State Killer. It's somewhat an attempt to give a platform to the Golden State Killer's victims – uh, surviving victims in particular. And then it also is, I would say, at least half a biography of Michelle McNamara. For me, it didn't work quite as well in its biographical form. It's a little bit too hero worshipy about Michelle McNamara. And I guess I understand why that is. Um, you know, there's just a lot of sentiment around her for very logical reasons. It Sometimes it detracts or distracts from the other things happening in the series. But in the balance, a lot of true crime documentaries are very, very similar. And I appreciated that this was trying to do a lot of different things. So credit on that one. Uh, You just heard our interview with the creators of Search Party, and the new season is very, very search party. Uh, So if you find these horrible, horrible people to be amusing, and I generally do, the new season is full of uncomfortable laughter about these horrible, horrible people and the horrible, horrible things they've done. I don't think, however, that this season is likely to sway new fans. But if you like the peculiar tone that that show has, and I dig it, it's it's a lot of different things at once. It's sometimes satire. It's sometimes straightforward genre TV. This season spends a lot of time in courtrooms. Uh, but yes, it is it is very much in the search party vein. And a lot of the stars, including uh, Joe Early and uh, Meredith Hagner and Leah Shawkat, uh, continue to shine. And so that's worth watching. And then coming at the beginning of next week, and she might be next, is being described as the first multi-part PBS POV documentary. And it's a look at women of color and the electoral process. So it features a number of very familiar political candidates, including Stacey Abrams and Rashida Tlaib, and follows their campaigns in 2018 and before and after. But I found it most interesting in its depiction of grassroots political organizing and the importance of getting out the vote, straightforward and simple. So when it's just saying, oh, Stacey Abrams is awesome, oh, Rashida Tlaib is an exciting new voice in politics, well, yeah, I, I know that. That's, that's not thrilling to me. I agree, but I know that. But when it's introducing me to a lot of people who I don't know who are simply campaign managers or voters' rights activists, I thought it was a, 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 an interesting thing and a great way to give voices to those people who don't always have the same platforms that a Stacey Abrams has. So, That's a lot of TV. Feel free to watch some of it.
2: And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Well, my friend, it feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We will be taking the 4th of July holiday off and our next episode will be July 10th.
3: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always available on Twitter if you want to say hi, questions, comments, concerns. You know, we like to hear from you. Uh, if you have actual mailbag questions, though, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the number five, at thr.com. Until two weeks from now, Leslie.
2: Until then, Dan.